This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for November 2nd, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal. I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're joined by Corey Harden, a pulmonary and critical care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and Deputy Editor of our sister journal, NEJM Evidence. We'll be talking about an article that NEJM Evidence recently published. But before we get there, I'd like to revisit a topic that we haven't covered in a while, the treatment of patients who are hospitalized with COVID-19. Inpatients are at a significant risk of progression of disease to ARDS requiring ventilatory support. So what interventions do we have now that can help prevent this progression? COVID-19, in particular, severe COVID-19 in hospitalized patients is, as Steve says, ARDS, or the Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. And one of the remarkable aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic has been a real refocusing of our understanding of ARDS. And the first aspect of that has been a reaffirmation of standard supportive care for ARDS, which includes low tidal volume ventilation, conservative fluid management, and most importantly, prone ventilation. These are standard parts of the armamentarium for ARDS of other causes and have been widely deployed to notable success during the COVID-19 pandemic. And before moving on to drug therapies, I think it's worth pointing out the extent of the success of these supportive therapies. With good, carefully managed, evidence-based supportive therapy, again, low tidal volume ventilation, prone ventilation, conservative fluid management, the mortality for severe ARDS does not have to be anywhere near what we saw in the early days of the pandemic when healthcare systems were more overwhelmed and can be as good or even better than mortalities, which we see now routinely in ARDS of other causes, meaning 20 to 30% for even our sickest patients. The other remarkable aspect of the COVID-19 epidemic with respect to the care of ARDS is just the sheer number of patients. So ARDS, although a very common disease in critical care, is by the standards of other fields of medicine, a relatively rare disease. And that means that clinical trials have historically been small. With the influx of patients with COVID-19, we've been able to answer a number of longstanding questions in the care of ARDS, in particular, the role of immunomodulatory therapy for so-called cytokine storm or maladaptive immunity in ARDS. And the earliest agents to show a mortality benefit in ARDS were targeted at the cytokine storm, which is a characteristic, the maladaptive immunity, which is a characteristic of severe disease. Chief among these are corticosteroids with the landmark results on dexamethasone from the recovery trial, and then going on to more targeted immunomodulatory agents such as anti-IL-6 and Janus kinase inhibitors, which are now standard parts of the therapy for ARDS. And so along with antivirals like remdesivir, these JAK inhibitors, corticosteroids, and anti-IL-6 agents form the standard evidence-based approach to ARDS when added on top of good supportive ARDS management. Corey, I wonder if I can ask you about the situation these days. I know that, of course, at the beginning of the epidemic, you're overwhelmed in the ICU with the number of patients What's it look like today? It's a whole different world today. And we can talk about the many, many factors that lead to that. But to give you an idea, here in Boston, we were had a fairly severe first wave of COVID in the spring of 2020. Our medical ICU, our primary medical ICU is an 18-bed unit. We have another 16-bed unit, which is a mixed med surge ICU. And then we obviously have a number of specialty ICUs. But on a typical day at Mass General, we might have 30 to 40 
medical ICU patients. At the peak of the first wave of COVID-19, we had 220 intubated COVID-19 patients throughout the hospital. And that entailed the opening of a number of surge units. And we've now gone back to a situation where all of our medical ICU population are managed within our standard ICUs, what we've taken to calling our legacy ICU beds, to use the term of art from the COVID-19 pandemic. And we, for severe COVID-19, we might have in our ICUs now, we might have one or two. There are periods of time, I was recently on service in our medical ICU, and over a two-week block of service, I had a single COVID-19 patient in the ICU. That's not to say there isn't hospital volume with COVID-19, there is, but the ICU volume is dramatically attenuated because patients just aren't getting as sick, even when they are hospitalized with COVID-19. And Corey, I want to get back to one of the issues that you sort of raised, which I think is important as we think about COVID and we think about severe lung injury. With COVID, we've understood over the last two to three years that there may be phases of injury. You may have replicating virus, the lytic virus phase causing direct injury, and then you have the aberrant host response. And with ARDS, I think you're getting at that where there may be the inciting event and then the consequences of aberrant host response, which with COVID we've been able to define a little bit better and target some of the treatments. And this reminds me to think carefully when we have sick patients and where I work at the Brigham and Women's Dana-Farber, we have a lot of immunocompromised patients. There are those patients who may not be able to control virus, so have prolonged viral infection for weeks to even months and may have a different kind of pathogenesis than largely what happens more broadly where there may be an inciting event like COVID, lung injury, aberrant dysregulation of the host inflammasome, and then we need to think about how to attenuate those aberrant processes while preserving host function. And this may well be a good model to remind us of these different forms of pathogenesis of ARDS and the kinds of injuries we take care of in the ICU. Yeah, Lindsay, you raise an incredibly important point and a point that I think is really the major focus of current research in ARDS care is that we understand that populations of patients who meet the clinical definition of ARDS are extremely heterogeneous. And we need to be able to identify subtypes or subphenotypes or you know biological endotypes among that broad population of patients with ARDS so that there are patients, as you say, who may benefit from anti-infective therapy versus patients who may benefit from immune modulation. And um, work led by Carolyn Kalti at UCSF principally has really revolutionized our understanding of what that means for interpreting clinical trials. So I mentioned the dexamethasone result from recovery. And the striking thing is in that trial is that the absolute benefit of immunomodulatory therapy is relatively small. And probably that's because there are patients in the broad recovery cohort who are not in the primarily inflammatory injury phenotype, but are in maybe a phenotype that might be more vulnerable to immunomodulation. And we don't yet have great ways for identifying which of those phenotypes our patients are in. And that means when you average over that broad group, you see a smaller effect, which requires larger sample sizes to identify. So this issue of subphenotyping and enriching trial populations in patients who are likely to benefit from the therapy under study is really sort of the current state of the art in ARDS clinical research. Let's turn to that study that was recently published in NEJM Evidence. The investigators looked at sabazabulin and its role in the treatment of hospitalized patients with COVID-19. 
So what is sabazavulin? This is an agent that acts on microtubules. Microtubules are structures made up of polymers of the protein of tubulin, and they act together as part of an intracellular cytoskeleton. The microtubule network is important in many processes, including in inflammatory cells, where microtubules are required for things like neutrophil migration and the formation of an intracellular organelle called the inflammasome, which is required to make inflammatory cytokines. Sabazabulin acts like the drug colchicine to inhibit the polymerization of tubulin and the formation of microtubules, though sabazabulin is likely more potent because it binds two different sites in different tubulin molecules. Interestingly, this agent was developed as an anti-cancer agent, since mitosis and some hormonal signaling also requires microtubules, and it's under investigation specifically for prostate cancer. One other effect of sabazabulin it can inhibit the normal entry and trafficking of virus particles and in vitro interferes with SARS-CoV-2 replication. And how did the study work? This was a double-blind randomized control trial in which the investigators recruited patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19, had at least one risk factor for the development of severe COVID-19, and required supplemental oxygen for hypoxemia, including those who needed mechanical ventilation, but excluding those on ECMO or patients who required presses or dialysis. Patients were randomized two to one to receive either sabazabulin or placebo. The primary outcome was survival at 60 days. There were several secondary endpoints, which included various measures of disease severity. Patients were stratified according to the amount of respiratory support that they required to try to match the arms as closely as possible. And then what happened? The trial was stopped early by the Data Safety Monitoring Board, but at a point where the planned enrollment was just about reached. This report only includes the first 150 patients who were analyzed during the interim analysis. The patients were largely white with a high proportion of Hispanic patients. More than 80% received dexamethasone, which, as Corey said, is now standard therapy for patients who are this ill. Some patients received the antiviral remdesivir, the anti-IL-6 antibody tocilizumab, or one of two Janus kinase or JAK inhibitors. There were 19 deaths in the savazabulant group and 23 in the placebo recipients. Because it was a two-to-one randomization, this represented a more than 50% relative reduction in the risk of death. Sabazabulin also reduced the number of ICU days, the number of days on mechanical ventilation, and the number of hospital days. There were no clear safety signals. Yeah, so I think there are a couple interesting things about this trial. There was an attempt by the authors to enrich this population with patients who were more severely ill or at higher risk for progression to ARDS. So patients who were receiving oxygen therapy who weren't yet ventilated required the presence of at least one high-risk comorbidity in order to be enrolled in the trial. And so the intent was clearly to have a sick or a very high-risk population. And I think that's relevant when we get to interpreting what the results were, and in particular, the overall mortality in the group. The other thing that I'll just highlight about this is this was a population that was enrolled relatively late in the pandemic, primarily Omicron, but also as a result of being later in the pandemic after the availability of a number of other immunomodulatory agents. So a key question with these you know, exciting, if early results is where does this agent fit into the overall armamentarium? So an important thing to look at in the interpretation of this trial is what other agents were these patients on in terms of those other evidence-based therapies for severe COVID-19 ARDS. And given these results, what role do you see for the agent? 
You know, I think that's the $64,000 question. You know, it's a 50% relative risk reduction, which is very impressive. And as people have pointed out, there exists a large population of patients who get very sick from COVID-19, despite the availability of the therapies that we've outlined. What role this agent has, I think, is relatively undefined. And to explain that, despite the impressive headline numbers, I think we have to reflect a little bit on the history of critical care research in ARDS and septic shock and these major critical care syndromes. You know, critical care providers don't have the benefit of a lot of large, positive, randomized controlled trials in the way that cardiology or oncology and some other fields in medicine do. And in addition, there have been some very impressive initial trials in critical care that failed to replicate. And so for all of these reasons, I think most critical care providers approach the medical literature in a new result like this sort of from the perspective of a jilted lover almost, where we've been down this road and we've had bad experiences in the past. The canonical example would be an agent called activated protein C, which was approved for a time for the treatment of severe septic shock based on a randomized controlled trial with a positive result at a relatively high mortality in the placebo group, those results failed to replicate in subsequent studies, and that agent has now been withdrawn from the market. There are aspects of supported care which have followed that same sequence. So early aggressive fluid resuscitation, so-called early goal-directed therapy, positive results in a single-center early-phase trial that failed to replicate in an international multi-center RCT and is now no longer standard of care. In fact, we've moved, as I said, to conservative fluid management. So as a field, we're cautious about the interpretation of preliminary results like this. And there are a couple aspects of this trial that I think people have had questions about, which is the mortality in the placebo group, which is relatively high at a little bit over 30%, higher than you would expect, even for a population deemed to be at slightly higher risk, and the incomplete use of other approved therapies. So roughly 80% of patients in this trial were on steroids, a much smaller percent were getting anti-IL-6 or JAK inhibitors. Um, an interesting aspect of the literature on immune modulation in COVID-19 ARDS is that there seems to be a somewhat generous population of patients who benefit from immune modulation over and above six milligrams of dexamethasone. And they benefit from immune modulation via a number of pathways, whether that be JAK inhibitors, whether it be anti-IL-6 inhibitors, there's at least one preliminary suggestion that augmented doses of dexamethasone may be beneficial as well. And that ties in with the pre-COVID-19 ARDS literature that suggests that higher doses of dexamethasone are beneficial in some patients with ARDS. So a question that arises with this agent is, is this just another example of some patients benefit from some augmented immunomodulation? And while this agent has both antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties, I'll note that preclinical data indicate that IL-6, for instance, and some of these known bad actor cytokines in COVID-19 ARDS are the production of those is decreased by this agent. So I think this is a very interesting preliminary report, and I'm not sure that we know for sure where this is ultimately going to fit into the standard regimen from COVID-19 ARDS. Corey, I'd add two things. First off, this is not yet an approved agent. It should come in front of the FDA pretty soon. So this is not an option for providers right at this point. But the other thing is that for this group of patients, as you've said, there are a lot of options. 
None have really had such a profound impact, though, especially on the folks with more advanced disease, those who are already intubated. And in this trial, with all of the caveats that you raised, there was a pretty good effect, even in these very advanced stage patients. So I wonder if it will be difficult for providers to not reach for this drug, even given the quality of the evidence. Yeah, as you correctly point out, it's not an approved agent. So it's hard to project what provider behavior will be on the other side of an as yet to be made FDA decision. I think there is a segment of the critical care community that requires more than one preliminary report before changing practice. And I think that's, again, because of the experience we've had with other agents where the follow-on studies were negative. And I think the contrast with dexamethasone, for instance, I think is an interesting one where that was widely adopted almost instantaneously upon the publication of the recovery preprint. One reason for that was that that was not a paper that arrived out of the blue, right? There was 30 years of research on steroids and ARDS with some previously very positive signals, including a recent, just prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the DEXA-ARDS study, which was published in the journal and showed a benefit of dexamethasone in non-COVID-19 ARDS. So there was a context in which the field was primed to see a benefit once a larger study could be done in the context of the pandemic. This agent is a novel mechanism, which is both exciting and which also might lead to some initial reluctance until there's more confirmatory data. And I will also say there was, I thought, uh, a quite on-point editorial that accompanied this article in Ancient Evidence by Dr. Sam Brown from Intermountain Healthcare, where he pointed out, we're in a little bit of a different place, as you point out, Eric, in that we do have a lot of agents with some you know, conflicting signals or maybe modest benefit in the literature, and enough agents, I think, that you start to wonder when is too much. So let me elaborate on that. So if you're going to give a patient who comes in who's intubated, who has severe COVID-19 ARDS and is on dexamethasone, is getting remdesivir, and you've already given them TOSI or an anti-IL-6 agent, because you know there's heterogeneity and because you know you don't know for sure that this is purely maladaptive immunity, when does adding another immunomodulatory agent raise the possibility of harm as well as benefit. And since we don't know from this trial where this fits with those other add-on immunomodulatory agents, the decision you're really faced with is not, do you take what looks to be a relatively safe agent and add it onto your patient in the hopes that there's some benefit? The decision you're faced with is, do you add it on to an agent like TOSI, where we have no data really on what using both of those agents on top of steroids does, or do you forego the TOSI, which has a really robust, albeit modest benefit demonstrated in much larger trials? So I think that makes it complicated to implement this agent into a standard approach because we really need to know how it fits in with these other agents that have been tested in thousands of patients rather than hundreds. I, I also make one other comment about this agent in particular. There are some biochemical difference between this and colchicine, but there are some similarities in terms of the binding to tubulin and the inhibition of microtubule polymerization. Colchicine has been tried in hospitalized patients in a number of large studies and has been largely negative. And more to the point, the placebo and colchicine mortality in some of the larger colchicine studies is about 21%, 20-21%, so much lower than the placebo mortality that we saw in this study. And so you might wonder whether the benefit would be maintained 
if the placebo group had a mortality that was similar to that seen in the much larger studies of colchicine, which after all is a biochemically similar, it's certainly not identical agent. Corey, you raised some very thoughtful and important points about ultimately we want to take better care of our patients in front of us. And how do we weigh the strength of the evidence in the context of where that agent fits in and also the kinds of treatments we have for the disease? And I think the activated protein C story, molnupiravir, a series of agents where the data are conflicting. There are aspects of it that suggest benefit in one way, but perhaps not in another. And how do we weigh that and weigh that in the context of the alternative therapies now available? And much of the challenge two plus years ago was we had no treatments available. And now that we have a variety of treatments that can be used in different combinations, how do we think about the best way to improve the outcomes of our patients in that much more complex but fortunate circumstance where we have different treatments that we can use? Yeah, I also, I think I want to make a comment about the role of research at this stage. As y'all have pointed out, this is an interim analysis, although certainly the authors made an attempt to see if the trends that were reported in this interim analysis were maintained in the larger cohort, and they were. Uh, and that's mentioned in the manuscript that we published. These are very exciting data. This is an agent with a novel pathway from things that are currently in use with a large relative reduction in mortality in a population of patients for whom we do believe that current standard of care is not adequate. So it is entirely possible for data like these to both be tremendously exciting and not quite ready to be deployed at the bedside or for which there remain questions about how it should be deployed at the bedside. And so I think these are very exciting data, which we are very excited to publish because I think the community needs to discuss this. This agent is something that there's a very great potential that it will have an important role going forward, even as we acknowledge that this is not the conclusion of this story. I'd like to ask more about the general idea of interim analyses. This study was stopped before the planned termination, but as you say, we know that the authors were able to collect more data since additional patients were enrolled before the stopping date. So how do you as journal editors and how should your readers think about studies like this? Well, I think it's interesting and I'll invite Lindsay to talk a little bit about our experience with other manuscripts where the trend, the headline number changed a lot between the interim and the final analysis. And as editors, we were concerned about that. And we asked the authors as part of the review process to look at that data. You know, it's perfectly legitimate. They had a data safety monitoring board and they crossed the boundary for efficacy. And at that point, you're obligated to stop the study. And so it's perfectly legitimate to do an interim analysis and to report that interim analysis. But there can be ways in which those data are misleading. So what we did is acknowledge that it's an interim analysis and ask the authors to do just some quick calculations on whether or not the major trend toward benefit in the primary endpoint was maintained acknowledging that it wasn't going to be a full analysis of the whole cohort. And we certainly look forward to seeing the full analysis of the whole cohort, which I'm sure the authors are also eager to publish. But I think you have to approach an interim analysis as an interim analysis, realizing that the story could change. And as editors, we did take the extra step here of asking them to do at least a preliminary check that the data in the full cohort were likely to be consistent with the data in the interim analysis. Steve, as Corey sort of helped frame it, but in thinking about the challenge here on the edge of medicine, I think one of the hardest jobs is being on a DSMB 
And they are unsung heroes in my view, because they have a thankless job. They need to ensure that we properly protect the volunteers in a study and also protect the science of the study to ensure that we get an interpretable result. But when we talk about protecting the volunteers, they have to be protected from both sides. Might the agent have undue harm? And if there's excessive harm, we need to stop studies as early as possible to minimize the risk. But also, if there is clear benefit, we want to stop the study early so that everyone can benefit. However, the data by their nature are preliminary because this is a first in class or first in indication or first for this kind of disease. And it's fraught with uncertainty prospectively. Retrospectively, it becomes more obvious. And I think as Corey raised, the APC data demonstrates how it was clear initially and became much more complicated later. And I think the DSMB members are incredibly important to the integrity of what we do to ensure that we always are putting volunteer safety first while we learn with rigor. Now, one of the challenges that go beyond an individual DSMB, but is a conceptual challenge. And we can do a thought experiment. If you take 10 studies trying to ask a similar question, but have 10 different immunomodulating agents, so they're all in ARDS, all in the ICU, all designed in a similar way going after a kind of pathway, what's the possibility that some of them may by chance, lean in a favorable direction and some in chance lean in an unfavorable direction. And that's why we need to be careful about over-interpreting any initial result where there may be regression to the mean because we will react and the DSMB and the study teams will react to an extreme result to bring caution to make sure we know what truth is. Because ultimately, we want to understand the biology, minimize the play of chance, and the DSMBs and those safety oversight committees are looking at data in an early, often underpowered frame to make the best decisions about safety and efficacy that optimize volunteer protection. So I think it is a terrifically important, incredibly hard job. It demonstrates the importance of doing these studies right. But we have to be careful about over-interpreting singular results as a community as we try to approach the asymptote of what we think is true. So I'm impressed with the work that they've done over COVID. We've had many, many studies stopped early for efficacy, some for harm. And that's where the DSMBs have been really trying to help the community. And we just have to look at additional data to make sure we're getting it right scientifically and then as we recommend treatments to our patients. So a complicated area, Steve, but I think one of the most important unsung elements of the high quality RCTs that are being done across the globe. There's one advantage to a study like this, which is that instead of having to do a new study, new data already exist. And so especially given all of the uncertainties that both you, Corey, and you, Lindsay, have outlined, we know that there will be more data, the same trial design, but still a significantly increased number of patients. And in the past, that has helped us when we've published some trials where the results actually changed or changed fairly significantly after a full analysis of 
the patients who were enrolled but not initially analyzed. So I think we have more data to look forward to, and perhaps it will change our thinking. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Lindsay. And thanks very much, Corey, for joining us today.